Welcome once again to the Artist of Motion podcast. We're recording at the end of January 2021. The craziness of COVID hit the world by storm last year. We can only hope 2021 will be a better year for us all. I'm grateful to be recording once again and bringing more great interviews with martial artists from around the globe who have agreed to share their experiences with us. Our mission is to help our listeners understand the similarities we all share as martial artists and seek to unite through the common ground of the love of what we do. Today, my guest is a highly sought-after Grandmaster of Tracy's Kempo Karate and a member of the Tracy Senior Advisory Council. He's been part of the Kempo world since beginning his training at the original Tracy's Karate School in San Jose, California, back in November 1963. He's also had experience in the Danzanru Jiu-Jitsu lineage directly under Sig Kufarat and several other systems I'm going to let him tell you all about himself. It's my pleasure today to bring to the show Grandmaster Ted Sumner. Thank you for joining us today. How are you, sir? I am doing great. I'm delighted and honored to be here. Me too. I'm happy to be recording again. So section one of our interview usually revolves around telling us, you know, where you started, what you've trained in, kind of your general martial arts history. So I'm going to go ahead and turn that over to you and let you roll with whatever you'd like to tell us about how you got into the arts and what you did in the middle and where you're at today. Sure. I I, I started out... um, boxing at the YMCA uh, under Denny Johnson. He, uh, he was a, a, a pretty good coach, but he, uh, he apparently saw some promise in me and he sent me to several camps at San Jose state that were put on by the boxing coach there. Now boxing at that time was an NCAA sport. Um, it was later dropped after, uh, after a, a man was killed at the nationals in, in Michigan. But uh, the coach there, uh, Julie Menendez, uh, also coached the U.S. Olympic team in 1960, and then again in '68, uh, guiding both uh, Cassius Clay, later Muhammad Ali, to a gold medal, and then later Joe Frazier. Uh, I became good friends with with Coach Menendez, and he uh, he saw some promise in me, and uh, he he was bringing me along with the idea that I would, after high school, go to San Jose State and. and he would arrange a scholarship and I would box for him. And then, uh, that, uh, that unfortunate accident, then the NCAA dropped boxing. And, uh, so that, that went away. Um, uh, I, I continued with him until, uh, got into high school. I wrestled, uh, and, and I was very fortunate. My coach was uh, Pat Lovell. He was the first American to ever medal in, uh, Olympic wrestling. Uh, and then, uh, when I got to San Jose State, the uh, San Jose State NCAA championship uh, judo team, uh, which was led by Yoshishida, uh, they were perennial champions. Uh, Thirteen weight classes, they had eleven national champions. That's just that's just incredible dominance. That's crazy. Uh, but you you could get PE credits uh, for taking judo. So I I took two PE classes. So it was four days a week and trained with the judo team. Well, they knew that I was a, a black belt in Kempo at that time. And uh, so when we, uh, the white belts uh, paired up for, for Rondori, I got a, I got a national champion to work with. And I first got tossed around and I got, got the hang of it and uh, pretty much shut him down as far as throwing me and uh, went back to grappling skills, which is not my favorite thing. That's why I went into Kempo to begin with. And uh, in, in, uh, 63, 
I finished wrestling practice. I went by to see my eighth grade school teacher, a guy named Dave Cardenas. Uh, Dave Cardenas, is a, he was badly wounded in the Korean War, but he had been a, a really good boxer up until that time. And he, uh, he kept boxing gloves in the back of the class, and he had, uh, he had a small ring taped off there. And he'd, he'd assign reading, and then he'd grab a couple of us and work on our boxing skills while everybody else was reading. <laughs> and, uh, but I stopped by to see him uh, and, uh, you know, maybe talk about, a little bit about boxing. And he, had, he said, no, forget boxing. He says, I'm doing this thing called Kempo now. And he spent the next hour demonstrating technique to me. And that was that. I mean, I had to do it. Um, the Tracy's had been open for just a couple months. He was their second student when they opened their doors. And uh, so I enlisted my, my buddy, Ricky Harper. Uh, he later became a, he was a, he was a, a progeny. And he uh, later went to work for Disney. He never went to college. He went right out of high school uh, to work for Disney and became one of their top people. He, he just off the charts brilliant and we convinced our parents that we we had to learn this art and uh, so we started there and the interesting thing about tempo uh in wrestling a bigger stronger more skilled opponent always beat me in boxing a bigger stronger faster more skilled opponent always beat me in judo well it goes without saying in kempo i learned that there's a thousand ways to beat a guy and he wants to fight that way. I fight a different way. It, it gives you so many opportunities to tip the scales in your favor. And, and I like to say with Kempo, my thumb's always on the scale. It's always in my favor. <laughs> so we started with, uh, with the Tracy's then. And, uh, uh, you know, I just, just continued on with them. Now the, the difference between Al and a lot of, uh, instructors, uh, if you ask something and he didn't know it, he'd say, well, why don't you go learn it? And if it's good, bring it back and teach it to us. Nice. And that's what happened. I kept hearing about, uh, kept hearing about the healing arts. And well, that, you know, that, you know, sounds interesting. What, what is it? You know, obviously it's not like studying medicine. There was something different to it. And I learned that, uh, that Henry Okazaki in Hawaii had been the, the uh, foremost proponent of that. And it was actually taught as part of his Dan's and Ruth system. And then I learned that, uh, that his top guy, the guy who inherited his, uh, his uh, system was Sig Kufroth. Then I learned he lived about 10 miles from my house. That's awesome. And uh, I, 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 I was timid and I, I hemmed and hawed for a long time. And finally a buddy of mine said, Give me the phone. And he called up Tony Ganovich, who was a uh, SIG stop guy, and said, you know, my, my buddy wants to meet SIG. And he said, all right, tomorrow afternoon, you can take us to lunch. <laughs> so that, that became that became kind of a ritual, you know. Uh, and uh, so I started studying with him. I, I learned both their standard and advanced courses in, in the uh, Seifuku Jitsu, which is uh, the healing arts, as long, along with their, their dance and roof system, which many of the techniques in it are identical or similar to what we do in Kenpo. Uh, they offer a slightly different perspective on how to accomplish the technique. And where in Kenpo, uh, coming through the chow line, oftentimes we would try to muscle our way through a technique. Uh, in the Dan's and Rue, the same technique, they, they, they work on finesse. They would unbalance the opponent. 
and I learned that I was never a good thrower. I was not a good thrower. I was not a good sweeper. I was not good at any of that stuff, but slightly taking the, the opponent off balance, particularly when you're in situations where they've got a hold of you, where you're, you're, you're in a grappling type thing. Um, you know, I, and I learned I hated going to the ground. Um, and when I got to the ground, I learned uh, how to get up fast, how to defend and get up. But um, so the, the dance and rue gave me an entirely new perspective. Now, with regard to the healing arts, uh, when I had my school in San Jose, uh, a friend of mine, uh, he was the coach of the full contact Nippon Kempo uh, team at uh, Osaka University. He was a mathematics professor. And uh, there's something about mathematics people that they, they are just really good at these arts. But he used to bring his team over to train with us uh, in the summer. And then, you know, they, of course, wanted to tour, you know, the U.S. And we'd, we'd take them all over there in California where, where my school was. But um, he was watching me work on somebody, uh, providing a, uh, what we called the general procedure. And he asked me about it. And I told him what the name was. He said it means art of uh, extending life. And I said, yes. He says, Ted doesn't do art. Ted is disciplined. It, it, it's a skill. I said, well, what's the difference? He said, so it's a skill you can teach. Art, sometimes people aren't going to get it. But what you're doing is a skill that can be easily taught to somebody else. And that was actually when I was in graduate school doing both my uh, – my uh, master's degree in distance learning and, and my doctoral in adult learning, I used that, that very premise that with the skill, any, anybody with black belt level skills, I can teach that art too. And, and again, it should go back to skill, um, that discipline, so to speak. Then, mm -hmm. So um, uh, the, the, you know, so I, I, I talked to the Tracy's throughout uh, the sixties uh, interesting story going back to the judo. Uh, like I said, they couldn't throw me, you know, uh, the, the skills we have in Kempo just, just, it's too easy to, to, to break it up. And that was, that was a very important thing in competition in those days because a clean throw into the match you won. And when they couldn't throw me, they went to sweeping and they, they just beat my ankles half to death. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I had these purple and, and, and blue ankles all the time. And I started wearing these uh, compression stockings that old women wear for, for varicose veins. And uh, one day I got to the, to the dojo and the Tracy's, uh, they were tearing up some old mat and uh, cutting new mat. So there was an exacto knife and a, and a uh, pile of mat there. So I cut up a couple of pieces and stuffed them down into my, my uh, compression sock. And I went over and kicked the bag, and I didn't feel anything. So I, I kicked the door frame, and I didn't feel anything. And the next poor guy who walked in, I said, "Hey, block this!" And I kicked in, and I didn't feel anything. He blocked it. Good block. And uh, and so pretty soon, everybody's you know, hey, you know, make me a pair, make me a pair. So I'm I'm making those for everybody, and then they want me to dye them black for them. And uh, you could really lay in a kick then and not injure your shins, which was always a big problem back in those days. Uh, I think, I think it, it, it caused people to get a little sloppy in certain areas, but everybody said, Oh, you ought to pat me. You ought to pat me. I said, no, nobody wants these except a few stupid martial artists, you know? And then uh, when I was 19, I, I, I won the only lottery 
that I've ever won. I won. I was uh, number five in the uh, international military sweepstakes. My draft number was number five. I was 19. Um, I skipped second grade, so I had no deferment the second semester of uh, of my junior year in college. And boy, I was I was drafted really fast. When I got out of the army, I found out that June Ree had actually patented my idea and was now a millionaire. And I thought that, eh, well, you know, hey, missed opportunities. Um, so then uh, by that time, then, you know, uh, Joe Lewis was with the Tracys, and I, was, I had the, the great opportunity to train with him. And up to that time when we had sparring class, uh, you know, we'd, we'd go through the warm-ups, and then everybody would sit down on the edge of the, edge of the mat, and uh, the instructor would pick two guys, and you'd fight two minutes, you know, because back in the old days, the matches were two-minute rounds. And then you'd sit back down. So you were lucky if you fought two two-minute rounds. If, if you were real lucky, you got three. Joe Lewis came to the Tracy's, and he said, okay, everybody pair up. Three minutes. And we'd fight the three minutes, and he'd say, okay, switch partners, three minutes. Nice. Switch partners, three minutes. And, boy, but after a half an hour, uh, he made a big, strong man into a small boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We got in better shape fast, and we got tough. And uh, then he uh, he unveiled the the checkered gi, and I remember the day he showed us that. And he explained a lot of people, you know, they see that checkered gi and they know it's Tracy's. They don't know what it means or why it was designed the way it was. But uh, Joe, that day, he uh, he took and and he explained that when you wear a white gi, uh, you appear faster than you are. And he he put on a white gi and he. Uh, threw a couple backhands and some punches, and yeah. Then he put on the black key, and he said the black is more deceptive. And he demonstrated that. And then he put on the checkered key, and he says when you mix them, it it uh, distorts the senses. And I mean, I I actually had opponents tell me, you know what, I got a headache just looking at you. You know. Well, that's convenient. So that was. Uh, it, that, but the checkered key, you know, became our trademark, and I remember walking in with. You know, all the guys that Joe ahead of us at, at a tournament. And as we walked in, I hear a guy say, oh, shit, they're here. <laughs> you know, so it, it had its desired effect. Was there a rite of passage you had to do to earn that gi? Yes, initially, yeah. You, you didn't get it unless Joe gave it to you. And uh, you had to show that you, you didn't have to win all the time, but you had to show that you were a good, you know, that, that you were a decent fighter and you would represent uh what was rapidly becoming Joe Lewis's fighting system, uh, though he was working for the Tracys, it was rapidly becoming Joe Lewis's fighting system. And if, if you represented it well, he would allow you to wear the gi. Of course, then again, you bought it from him, but and you paid him for it. But nonetheless, you got the honor of wearing it. Later, uh, a lot of them got out there. I don't know how. And then Al, uh, a few years back, had it mass produced, and now everybody wears it. Uh, guys who have never even fought. Uh, much less, uh, you know, been at all successful. They they're running around wearing them now. So, okay. So went started, you know, did some boxing. Went into the Tracy system of Kempo. Rolled in through Danzaru and uh, I hope I'm not mispronouncing this. Seifu Kujitsu. Uh, Seifu Kujitsu. It was the term uh, that means the art of extending life. That's the healing arts. Uh, Professor uh, Matamura 
he told me, he says, what Ted does is, is uh, a skill. And he, he said you should call it kotaipokushi, which means body repair skill. Mm. Um, and so when I wrote my, my dissertation, uh, I, I renamed it kotaipokushi. Not to uh, insult or dishonor anybody, but rather to to show respect for and differentiate myself uh, from from the Dan Zanru guys um, and and the, the slightly different application that I that I do uh, using our our Kempo skills. Uh, you know, it's very obvious when, when my students do it that they work from a horse stance. They line it up. They line the the subject up like they're going to fight they cut into the chi and add to the flow and it's it's um it's very obvious that it's slightly different and i didn't want them thinking that we had distorted it so i just named it uh, named it something slightly different that makes sense i think it honors the you know knowing that it came from where it came from but you're also showing that you're respecting them by having a different name on it as well so precisely yeah i think that's a really good way to go bravo so uh, incorporating that piece in there, was there any other part of the arts that you spent major amount of time in? Well, I, I did uh, wanting to learn, you know, the, the weapons. Uh, I did. I was able to pick up a few things from Obata uh, on the sword. And then Professor Matsumura taught me his family sword set and then their theories. Uh, he, he comes from what was at one time a samurai family. Uh, so that was uh, that was a few other things that I was able to get there. Uh, and anybody who's learned the Tracy's uh, original spear set, it is unique in that it is a, uh, a military combat set. And the movements are done in such a way that uh, they would be done in ranks. Mm. And so you, uh, throughout that spear set, you know, there's no, there's no uh, cartwheels, there's no uh, acrobatics in it, um, but you, um, you attack the subject in front of you and you attack on obliques both right and left. So, um, and oblique uh, is, is what finally defeated the Spartans when the Thebans um, at the Battle of Lucia, uh, they use an oblique attack and it, it threw off the, the greatest army, infantry army on earth. Um, so this, the Chinese strangely understood that long ago, that an oblique attack was very effective. So that particular spear set, I just um, uh, really enjoyed. And I, I took and, and uh, tried to see what other people had and nobody's got anything like it. Uh, all very wushu and, uh, you know, a lot of acrobatics. You couldn't do it with a guy next to you. Makes sense. Okay, so I think that rolls through most of the martial career, correct? Pretty much. Okay, and then I know you had also served with both uh, Santa Clara sheriffs as well as San Jose PD. And if that's something we can you know, dig right. into there, I know you have a book that came out, uh, you put out a few years ago that was relating to some of those experiences. Uh, with respect, obviously, I don't want to put you in a position of talking about anything that might be classified or uh, too controversial or whatnot, but... Anything you'd like to share along that part of it, I think that would be great to dig into how those martial arts experiences help that in, in what is realistically real-life situations. Sure. I mean, um, and Al Tracy had me one year uh, at his super camp, had me teach um, 
a seminar called Life on the Edge, in which I taught uh, uh, five different uh, situations, life-threatening situations in which I was uh, uh, involved in law enforcement that uh, were resolved to my satisfaction through the use of, of uh, Kempo techniques. And at, uh, it wasn't received as well as Al uh, had hoped, or I had hoped. I think it was a little bit too gritty, too... Uh, and martial artists don't have weak stomachs, but th- this was a bit much for him. But uh, I went into... Uh, when I got out of the Army, I went to work for the... Uh, I, I actually applied for San Jose Police. Uh, San Jose Police, you could apply at 20 and a half, but they couldn't hire you until you were 21. Sheriff's Office, you had to be 21 even to apply. So I applied for San Jose PD. There were 1,200 applicants. I, I finished number two in all the testing. And then there was a lawsuit, uh, you know, because they somebody felt that it was unfair to non-English-speaking applicants. So that thing got tied up in court. And I applied at the sheriff's office. Well, the Angela Davis trial uh, uh, was going on right then, and they had to beef up uh, their court security. So they, they were authorized to hire 50 extra people, and I, I was hired then by them as a uh, – they called it a non-classified position. Uh, so w- at whatever time there were openings, we would slide into those and begin our, our probation. Um, and I was initially assigned to the jail, the main jail. And uh, I had a uh, I had a sergeant named Dick Min, and Dick had uh, he had studied in Okinawa when he was in the Air Force, uh, Shikaru, and uh, was was still fascinated by the martial arts. And so he used to assign me to work uh, what in the jail was was called the second deck, and there was a uh, a big area when you got off the elevator, a big open area in case they were moving a lot of people up. And then there was the, what they called the, the, the desk. And then we had the delousing showers and that's where we, we, uh, uh, showered them, deloused them, got them in their jumpsuits, assigned them a cell, gave them a mattress and, you know, housed them as they say. But in that open area there by the uh, elevators, uh, you know, I could do, pretty much any of the katas that we had, there was enough room there. And he assigned me with a, a, a guy named uh, Doug Schwinn. And Doug had, uh, had uh, he was still uh, recovering from uh, the, uh, the siege of Quezon. He was a Marine and he went through that one. And that, oh, uh, major that was a tough one. Yeah, a little bit. And uh, so, uh, but he had studied, um, uh, uh, at the Tracy School in Sacramento, uh, and so he was—I uh, I think he was almost yeah—he was a brown belt, and so he would assign us together, and then he'd come up to to, to watch us do because I just started teaching Doug. I I took him through the whole curriculum, and uh, but he would come up and he he'd hand me a mop handle and say, "Let me see that staff set, or let me see something else," and and all the prisoners on that on that floor were lined up you could see their heads at the bars you know <laughs> i didn't think you could get so many faces you know in that bar. yeah <laughs> they were all watching and uh the uh so then i by by the way I, I trained doug during that time all the way up and then i asked al tracy you know could we arrange a test he said you test him. nice that was unprecedented 
that was unprecedented for Al Tracy to to give somebody else the authority to actually promote somebody to black belt. Um, that was uh, anyway. So Doug went on. He became chief of police somewhere up in Oregon, and he now lives in uh, in uh, Colorado. But so then one night uh, there there was uh, on on uh, Wednesday night Thursday morning. Uh, they would get the guys who were going to the penitentiary out and they would take them down stairs into the cafeteria on, on the uh, east uh, east deck and they would uh, they'd give them breakfast and then at, at 5 a.m. they'd start loading the bus and they'd take them out through an entrance to the jail that uh, was the drunk tank. Uh, and it was uh, so they didn't have to take them out through the main area and they'd pull the bus up there. And uh, on that night, what they called they, it, it was joint night is what they called it. The, the, uh, the penitentiary was called the joint and they were going to make the joint run. And our transportation officers would come in and, and get the, uh, get the prisoners who were going. Well, on that evening, one of the murderers of a witness uh, in the Angela Davis uh, uh, matter was going and he, he had been sentenced to death, but they had, uh, 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 declare the death penalty uh, illegal in California. But uh, what a lot of people don't uh, don't understand is that we had uh, 14 cells on what they called murder, murder max, maximum security where the, the killers were. And when you first went there, you, you were assigned to the first cell. And then as somebody left, that would be the last guy, the 14th cell, you continually moved down so each time a guy was gone who was sentenced to death, he'd have to walk by all the prisoners. And this was where they get the term dead man walking. So you were, I don't know if they still do this because it, it's, it's certainly a, a form of psychological terrorism, but these poor guys would have to watch them walk by. Well, on that night, this guy was being taken out to go to the penitentiary and, and supposed to be to go into the gas chamber. Well, he, they, so we'd call him on the PA system. We'd say, prisoner so-and-so, stand by the gate for transportation. And he yells back. He says, well, it was, a, it was peppered with profanity. But he said he wasn't going to until who he referred to as the baby-faced cop with the curly curly hair comes down there. And uh, he, he made the statement he was going to, uh, well, basically he wanted to have sex with me, you know. And uh, so when he yelled that back, the transportation officers looked at both me and my partner on the deck, a guy named Danny Kaiser. He said, well, I think he's talking about you. <laughs> and we had no policy. We had no extraction policy and how to go in. And now they do. Uh, they have a real good procedure, which one of my students wrote, actually, for the state of California corrections. But uh, so all I could do, I mean, you know, and then what they had done there on Murder Mac. Uh, is, is a procedure where they, they uh, the prisoner will put a pillow over the toilet and then he'll sit on it and then he'll flush the toilet. And that would cause all the toilets to back, the water to back out. So then he would stick his head in the toilet and he could, he could shout into it and they could hear him all through the jail. And so everybody hmm. in the jail knew what was going on. And, and, and he says, he says, uh, the guy's name was Richard Rodriguez or David Balladon, was but he says, they, they, Balladon is going to 
basically sodomize the bitch. And that was what they were calling me. So we get to the, the, the gate was electronic and I handed my key that, which was procedure. You couldn't go out on the deck with, with your key that could open every cell in the, in the jail. I handed it to my partner. Yeah. I could see why that would be a problem. Yeah. So the transportation guys are waiting that the murder max is going crazy. And guys were calling up to go, what's going on, man? Every, all the prisoners are just, just riotous. And, uh, so they're, they're uh, anything they had that was metal, they're raking it across the bars, they're yelling, send in the bitch, send in the bitch. And uh, so he hits the button, the, the big electronic gate slowly opens, it creaks, and then it when, it when it is entirely open, you hear this hard clang, and everybody went quiet. <laughs> you could have heard a pin drop in there. And I stepped in. And then they went wild again. They threw everything they had at me. They were cups of urine, uh, feces, old food that they had. They were cutting their mattresses open, throwing the stuffings. They were lighting it on fire and throwing the stuffings at me. And so I just walked very slowly down there. By the time I got to the 14th cell, I mean, I'm covered with urine, human uh, excrement. I've got burning uh stuff on me i got you know anyway i look in there there's all kinds of nastiness i can see him in the corner he's stark naked and he's dropped a, a, a bar of this hard soap into a sock on he had two of them wrapped around him sorry i was gesturing and i just knocked the phone over um but he had him wrapped around like brass knuckles so they they i turn and i face the gate the, the the door to his cell and I nod back down and Kaiser sees me. He punches the button and his gate slowly opens and he's he's down in the in, in the corner in the back of the cell and he's hunched down, stark naked and he's got these socks with this hard soap in it like brass knuckles and he's I, I swear he was drooling, but he's he's kind of hissing like a wild animal. I step in and he charged me and you know, listen this is, this is an orange belt technique. You know, he was going to tackle me and drive me up against the bars and off balance. Well, as he drove at me, I took one step back as his head came in. I, I hit above the neck, drove the head down, came around with the elbow, cracked right into the sixth thoracic vertebra and down he goes. And then, you know, he's down on the ground and I knee dropped him on the head a couple of times and punched him and called him a few names that, you know, I won't repeat here because this is, you know, for family consumption. PG-13. Yeah. And then I, I turned him over, <laughs> handcuffed him, and turned him back. I said, get up. And I could see his eyes were open. He was fully conscious, but he couldn't he couldn't move. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to carry this guy. So I looked around, and he had a towel there hanging on, you know, his, his, his towel by the, the sink. So I wrapped it around his ankles, and I dragged him out of the cell by the ankle so i got this naked guy handcuffed i'm dragging you know sort of like the great white hunter coming back from the safari in africa <laughs> and i start dragging him down and it's stone silence and i'm dragging him through all that mess that they they covered me with and they're all standing at the gate and nobody's saying a word and i drag him down out through the gate i drop him and I told the transportation guys, he's all yours. 
and Kaiser looked at me. He wanted to grab me and hug me, and then he smelled me. <laughs> so he took me in. The, <laughs> they put me through a complete delousing with my uniform on. Um, but then, uh, that's hilarious. So they they took him and they well they, you know he was paralyzed, but he recovered from it. I didn't I didn't break anything. It just it's, it's interesting that our technique, the elbow is big enough that it caused. Uh, um, uh, severe swelling of the spine, but it didn't it didn't cause him any permanent paralysis. And six years later, he escaped, and he's never been heard from again. So, Oof. Uh, well, you know, that's just one of those things. You know, uh, concern me a little bit because I'm not hard to find, but uh, you know, uh, never heard from. I, I I don't know if he's alive or you know probably got away to Mexico. All right, fair enough. You know, that's that's anybody who wants to go into law enforcement is thinking about, you know, corrections as a uh, which is is what you do is work with the prisoners in environments like that. Another one uh, uh, evening, the uh, they had a prisoner who was he was I think he was insane, but he was in one of the padded cells uh, at the end of a part of the jail they called the uh, snake pits. And they were eight man cells on both sides. And there were. Uh, there were six of them on both sides, and then there were three of these cells at the end, and they had a big solid door with just a little tiny, uh, uh, what would you call it, about a three-by-six uh, little little window that they could look through. And then it was padded, nothing but a hole in the corner to, you know, as, to act as a toilet. And they had a roll of toilet paper. They always used it as a, uh, as a uh, pillow. And he would uh, stand at the... Uh, at that window, all you could see was his eyes, and all night long he he'd laugh. He had this insane laugh, like Renfield in the movie Dracula, and he <laughs> and, and the prisoners were were getting unnerved by it. You know, hey man, can't you shut that guy up? <laughs> I'd walk down there, and as soon as I walked down, he'd wait until I got about three feet from the door, and then he ducked down. And then I'd turn the light on in in the padded cell, and I'd look in there, and he'd pop his head up. And I take, I knew he was going to do it, but it still makes you jump. So anyway, it's like a punch me clown from hell. Three in the morning, the nurse comes and uh, she says, "Well, I've got to, I got to do pill call." And uh, that was she had to have a deputy with her to protect her, but also, uh, you know, if, if somebody was getting a uh, prescription drug and uh, the other guys knew it, they beat him up and then they they stand there and take his drugs. So they needed the deputy to identify the guys. So we drew straws. I got, I got pill call with the nurse and this was not, you know, like the Hollywood nurses, this gal looked like she took a direct hit with an ugly bomb. And, uh, so we get down to that cell and she says, well, he's diabetic. I have to give him an injection. And I said, okay. She said, well, you're going to have to hold it because he's crazy. And I said, okay. So I, she gets the hypodermic ready and I, Open the door. Well, he has taken off his uh, his jumpsuit, and he has uh, covered himself with excrement and smeared it all over the wall as well. And he seems to be a recurring theme. Well, this is this is what I'm talking about. Anybody who's interested in uh, in this line of work, um, but he, uh, I closed the door, <laughs> unlocked it, and she said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Well, he's covered with film." She says, well, I have to give him the shot. I said, well, 
he's covered with his own filth. She says, well, you're going to have to open the door. I have to give him the shot. So I opened the door and I said, go ahead. Well, he's, you know, he's down in, in like a wrestler's uh, pose. He's ready to go. And she says, well, you got to hold him. I closed the door again. And I said, <laughs> this is just too nasty. And I looked and there was a fire hose there. I said, okay, I got an idea here. So I opened up the door, pulled out the fire hose. Well, I didn't know I set off a three-station alarm. So we got fire on the <laughs> at three in the morning, stations responding to the jail because I pulled that hose out. And I turn it on and I open the, the, the door to the padded cell and I hose that guy down real good, wash the walls. Every time I start washing the walls, he, he'd get up and then I'd blast him again and, and pin him in the corner. <laughs> and then I dropped the hose, ran in and choked his ass out. And then she gave him a shot. And uh, so I was closing the door and putting the hose away when my sergeant comes up. And he says, what happened? And I explained to him. He says, well, you know, you set off an alarm with that. I said, well, I didn't. He says, well, the sheriff's in route, the undersheriff's in route, and the jail commander's in route. I said, well, call him and tell him not to. We didn't have cell phones in those days. I said, tell communications mm-hmm. to tell him on the radio. Anyway, so I, I got a letter of reprimand for that one. But, uh, you know, you do what you have to do. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the jail, you, you, you have opportunities to, to use your art. I've I, are you familiar with the movement we call Chinese Swings? I might know it under a different name. I'm not familiar with the Tracy's curriculum specifically. Double back knuckle. Double back knuckle. Okay. Where you let him go. And uh, and we, we teach it as a, a defense against multiple attackers. And so you swing one way, then you swing the other way. And, and you have to separate them. So they're, they're strictly uh, a high-velocity movement. You're not muscling anything. And we had to change the light bulbs one night. Um, and so, uh, we, uh, you know, I'm sorry, going back to, uh, the whole thing with the fire hose and all that, the next night when I came to work, we would brief in the, uh, in the kitchen, there was a, a dining hall there for just the officers. And that's where we would brief before we went on duty and they would give us the population, the count we had, anybody who was a particular problem, anything that was going on. I got to work the next night and everybody's wearing raincoats and fire hats. And, uh, they awarded me a little, one of those little plastic kitty fire hats. <laughs> That's funny. Um, <laughs> they did have a sense of, <laughs> um, but, uh, so on that night we had what were called nightlights that, that kept the cells just, just illuminated enough so that you could see what the prisoners were doing. Well, they would, they would break the lights out so that we couldn't see what they were doing. Um, they, their circadian rhythm went to uh, staying up at night because that's when they committed their crimes and sleeping during the day. And that was the same in the jail. And they didn't like the night lights there. They didn't want to see what they were doing. So the sergeant said, well, you know, you guys got to change the lights and uh, do it at three. So, uh, they, they thought that that was when they were at their lowest life's ebb that they were sleeping. So, again, following a departmental procedure, I opened the gate, handed the key to my partner, a guy named Larry St. Dennis. I moved the, the uh, uh, ladder in. I had a box of light bulbs. I climbed I told the guys, I said, I'll be out of here in just a minute. Climbed up the ladder. And when I was at the top, 
and putting in a light bulb, they kicked the ladder out from underneath me. And down I went head first. And uh, if you know the front fall, the, the front fall, I took it right on the elbows, or not on the elbows, but on the forearms, the way we're supposed to. And strangely enough, didn't get hurt at all. Didn't even bruise. But anyway, uh, with an eight-man cell, and boom, I got eight guys on me. And uh, interesting thing about multiple opponents is when you're at the bottom, uh, the guys on top of you, they can't really move. And the guys on top of them can't move. But the guys who are at the top, they're, they're trying to punch you, and they're hitting the other guys. They're hitting their buddies. And pretty soon their buddies got a little tired of that, and they got off of me until they start fighting with each other until I've only got like three guys on me. So I got, you know, I did everything the way we're, we're taught. I tucked the knees, got the legs under me, and started driving up begin pivoting and, and it was close because they were right on me and I, I was hitting with elbows first and as they I knocked them back I then began you know opening up and unleashing the the, the Chinese swings and well I'll tell you what I had practiced that since I was 13 years old I had never unleashed the full power of that movement and you could hear skulls cracking as I was going back and forth and finally everybody was down and there was one guy he thought he was going to get back up and, and try me again. And I, I, I moved toward him and he said, no, no, he laid back down. And just then, you know, the elevator opens and the, the emergency response team comes out and it was Dick men. Nice of them to join the party. Like men said, he says, we heard you were in trouble, but it looks like it's the other way around. And the adrenaline <laughs> was starting to, to wear off. And I said, just get me out of here. But, uh, you know that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of technique that you use. Uh, people think uh, law enforcement it's all arrest and control. Uh, it, it, and, and, and probably ninety nine point nine percent of what you will do in law enforcement is arrest and control until they're trying to kill you, and then you better know the art. You better know what you're doing, and you better be ready to use it, and you better not be timid about uncorking the genie because once that genie's out you can't put it back in the bottle as pandora's box at that point yeah yeah if you need pandora and you'd open the box and decide to let pandora go away somewhere else you're probably not going to live through it uh, that's it now that was all when you were working with the sheriffs or was that still or was that with the pd at that point no that was all in the jail that was assigned to the jail um the pd i i they, they assigned me to work with this uh this one guy and they said we don't think he's fit for law enforcement you know we want your assessment and it was midnight on patrol and uh i said uh you know as, as we were uh driving along there very close to dawn i said you know you don't seem comfortable he says i'm not i said as a matter of fact you know you you, <laughs> you seem to be scared he says yeah this this i don't like this at all i said why are you doing this he said well my therapist told me I should face my fears. And I said, well, you shouldn't do it by becoming a police officer and endangering the people that you're sworn to protect and other officers. I said, but why San Jose? I said, I understand you work for the sheriff's office. So did I. He said, well, do you remember the riots at Hellier Park? And I said, well, yeah. Yeah, I happened to be there. I didn't tell him that. And he said, well, you know, when, when we responded, he said, my... 
there were four deputies and they, they were trying to, uh, you know, get a prisoner under control. And there was a crowd of about 20 people around him trying to take the prisoner away. And they were having trouble. And he says, I looked down by the water and there was this blonde San Jose officer down there. And he had this guy by the scruff of the neck and he was beating him. And this crowd was about 80 people. And every time they came toward him, he shoved the guy into him. And as they grabbed the guy, he'd, he'd smack their hands and their wrists with his nightstick. And he said and they were they were afraid to charge him, but they were charging the four deputies. But that San Jose officer was scaring the hell out of them. And then he looks at me and goes, that was you, wasn't it? <laughs> he said, nope, nope, <laughs> nope, just look like me. I have no independent recollection of that event, Madam Senator. Yeah, one me, one me. But, you know, uh, and that's <laughs> one of the things that we learned in, in multiple uh, opponent attacks is you use the opponent. You know, you get a hold of somebody, you get some control over somebody, and you use him as a shield. And, uh, you know, so every time they'd come toward me, I'd just push the guy into him, and then they'd grab him to try to take him away from me. And I'd start, you know, on it's amazing when their hands and their wrists are getting hit with his nightstick, they move back real quick. Um, but then when I was uh, uh, first, first went to the SWAT team, we had a problem. Uh, we'd had. Uh, uh, several very high-profile rapes occur, uh, the most notable of which they'd uh, broken into uh, the uh, nunnery where the, the nuns lived at the uh, Catholic Archdiocese at St. Patrick's Cathedral there. And uh, he'd raped a nun, of all things. And then uh, a couple of others, he, he raped a school teacher uh, at an elementary school just a couple blocks from the university, San Jose State University, uh, in her classroom. I mean, she was closing up. It was right after the time change, and it was dark. And then he raped a couple of students in the ladies' room, uh, one at the education building and, and one at the, uh, I think it was the liberal arts building at, at, at the university. And so uh, it was the same guy. The MO was the same. Um, so uh, the chief wanted something done. Uh you know, so our chief was a guy named McNamara, Irish chief, St. Patrick's, Irish, uh, Irish parish. Uh, he wanted this guy taken down. So he threw it to sex crimes. They said, we can't do it. We just, we got a caseload. We're investigating. He threw it to patrol. They said, look, you know, we're answering calls from the time we come on until it's over. So we worked directly out of the chief's office. The SWAT team did. So he threw it to us and our, our, uh, sergeant, uh, was a pretty smart guy, guy named Mike Mailer, and he said, okay, we'll do it, but here's what we need. We need two female officers to act as decoys. We need a van with this surveillance equipment. They bought us all the surveillance equipment. And then other than that, we used our own, you know, normal cars that we had for, for the SWAT unit. And so we, we put this, this poor female officer out there dressed like a college kid carrying her books um, down by the university. Well, the first night, we're back in the bushes. She sits down on a, on a bus bench, and the guy sits down talking to her, gets up like he's going to walk off. He walks around behind the, part, the uh, bus bench, and we saw him put a knife to her throat. And as we began to move, she was a tough little gal. She pushed the knife, slipped under him, shot him in the chest, and the uh, bullet went in through, through one lung and uh, lodged in his spine. And uh, so then there was uh, another night we were 
uh, working it, and uh, she had to use the restroom, so they took her down to the hospital, which was just down the street. So we pulled in. We were going to get a soda. So the way it worked was we had three guys on the street walking uh, that would follow her and keep in a distance. Then we had uh, the, the surveillance van, and it was monitoring everything and recording everything. And then we had uh, a chase car, which was an unmarked car with two plainclothes police officers that could get in close. And then we had a chase car with two uniformed officers so that if something happened, you know, you get much more control if you have uniforms there. So we just, we were working the the plain clothes and we we pulled into a a liquor store and uh, this tow truck had backed up and it had bumped a a car and six guys get out of the car and they're going to, they're going to beat up the tow truck driver. So we we pull in, we turn our lights on, which were in the grill. We chirped the siren to let them know that we were the cops. We got out, you know, our badges displayed on our, uh, on our belt buckle. And uh, this one guy, he wouldn't give it up. He wouldn't stop. And I grabbed him and, and choked him out. The other guys then started attacking me. So I'm fighting a, a defensive retreat, uh, you know, with my partner next to me. And before you know it, we got 40 people there. And then 100. And then 200. And we're in the door of this liquor store, and they're trying to trying to get the guy away from us. And with the way we were positioned, they had to come straight at us. And we were able to... to uh, provide enough firepower, you know, and I don't mean shooting, I mean with our fists and feet, that we were holding them at bay, and then and, uh, the uniforms got there. Uh, the drunk tank, or the drunk wagon, and several uniformed officers, and I, I saw the sticks coming over their head and beating their way in, and they got to us, and uh, so we, we had a path out. I was not going to let go of that guy. That guy was going to jail one way or another, but as we're walking out, there was there was three guys and they're screaming and yelling. My, my partner was black and they're yelling racial epitaphs at him that I found offensive because only I could call him those names. So um, we get out there and turn the guys over, the guy over to their uniforms and I go back into the crowd. And like, where, where are you going? We just got you out of there. And the, the three guys saw me coming at him. I got two of them. I got a hold of two of them. And the crowd is, they're punching and kicking me and they lift me up. I'm up on top of these people in a prone position or a supine position. They're hanging on to these two guys and they're punching and, and uh, grabbing at me. And the uniforms had to beat their way in again and they got us out of there. You know, I checked the rap sheets on those guys when we got uh, to booking and they both had extensive records for failure to disperse, assault on a police officer, inciting a riot, all kinds of things. And uh, the third guy that my partner had followed me and had got him, he was a he was a ringleader. He was a member of all kinds of subversive organizations. And, and it's amazing. It was a quiet night. It was probably 11 o'clock. And these guys were able to, to stir up all those people to, to where we had a crowd of almost 200 people there by the time that thing was finished. That's nuts. And, and you know, so... You, you, <laughs> You know, you go driving into a quiet neighborhood, next thing you know, you're in a riot. So, uh, martial arts skills serve well. Uh, I mean, another night I was was in, in pursuit of a car that was uh, weaving that crossed the road. It turned out they weren't drunk. They were 
arguing about something. I pulled up, turned my lights on. Oh, there we go. We go into a pursuit, chase them into a neighborhood up into a cul-de-sac. Doors open, they all run. I catch one guy. And that's the thing. When you got five people, you can only catch one of them. And I'm bringing him back. And I'm, I'm in the struggle, I had dropped my nightstick. And I cuffed him. And I was getting ready to put him in the back seat of my car. And another guy ran back up. And he picked up my nightstick. And he was holding up like a baseball bat. And whap, with everything he had, he hits me right across the back. And that felt, I don't know what the electric chair feels like, but it's got to be something like that. That hit like a, like 50,000 volts. And Oof. I let go of the guy, and I, I'm trying to get my breath, because, you know, hit me across the diaphragm there, you, you can't breathe. And I'm, I'm trying to hang on to that guy, and the other guy, he's winding up again. He's, he's going to hit me again with my stick. And I swing the other guy around. He hits his buddy right in the head. And then he, he, he didn't learn. He winds up again. And I, I swung the guy over and he catches him on the elbow. And uh, then I, by then I was op, you know, operational again. And I pushed the guy into him and I pushed them both up against the car. Then I grabbed that other guy. And of, of course, I abided by all departmental policies on use of force. <laughs> then. Just as I was sitting there both the car, another couple guys come running back. That they're going to help their buddies out, and it was too late. Another another car arrived, and that was that. <laughs> you never know what you're getting into, you know. So the, eventually, the, you wound up uh, taking your leave from law enforcement, then, right? Yeah, um, I uh, I did not want to be a supervisor. Uh, I was in an army. I was in an army where we were all conscripted. Very, very few had volunteered. Um, and I, I looked at what it's like trying to supervise people who don't want to be supervised. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be a supervisor. And that's the only way you can advance in law enforcement. You must become a supervisor. And I'd done what I wanted. I worked undercover narcotics for three and a half years. I worked the SWAT team for three years. I got to work homicide for six months. Um, you know, the rest of it, I didn't want to work vice or sex crimes or anything like that. I'd done what I wanted to do. Um, my uh, wife was going to leave me if I didn't leave law enforcement. My family wanted me back in the business. Um, that had been a bone of contention to begin with. So I went back to work for my family business and got you know, some very, very good business experience. Um, ultimately then uh, branched off and, and formed my own company and uh, did well with that. Now my wife and I, uh, when we moved to Texas, uh, we had bought and sold real estate, but uh, never as, as, as licensed agents. When we got here, we thought, well, what, no, why not make it another career? And we both got a real estate license and we've been doing that. And strangely, a uh, great many of our clients are former law enforcement people leaving California and coming to Texas for a little bit more, um, what would you say, conservative environment. So we, we have, we have uh, enjoyed that. Uh, and you know what? I've had people get mad at me uh, in business, but, you know, I haven't been shot and I haven't been stabbed and I haven't been assaulted since I left law enforcement in any of my business dealings. 
makes perfect sense to me. I mean, you, you're either going to put yourself in danger or, okay, so put yourself in financial possibility of danger if you're not doing business right. And it sounds like you're doing the right way that way too. Well, you know, it, it the formula is the same for keeping yourself and the people that you're, you're, you've sworn to protect safe. Well, it's, it, you follow the same formula in business. You, you look after the interests of your customers and your clients and you make sure that, that everything goes uh, for them as, as well as it possibly can. Um, and those, those uh, principles of uh, eh, same thing in teaching martial arts, you know, uh, always gave the best lesson I could never, never shorted anybody on their instruction. So it's, if, if I could jump back in time here for a bit here, we kind of moved through an entire career through martial arts into law enforcement and that kind of stuff. If I could jump back a little bit here. Uh, I know you had started with the Tracy's in San Jose, but then you actually owned one of the biggest schools in the area in Santa Clara for quite some time, correct? Um, I did not own the Santa Clara school. That was Bill Yazel. I was his head instructor from uh, until he sold the school to John Sepulveda, uh, who was... Uh, uh, a Tracy student until he, uh, yeah, he went with, uh, with Parker then after that. Uh, but, uh, no, I was, I was his instructor, head instructor. Uh, and at, at one point I was the highest paid instructor on the West coast. I made $3 and 25 cents an hour. And most of the guys were making two bucks, two fifty an hour. So how about that? And minimum wage was a dollar 35. Doing something you love at that point in time, I'm sure that was uh, pretty fun. I'd have done it for free. But anyway, so I, I opened my own school uh, after I left law enforcement. Now, I had taught all through there. Um, occasionally, they'd ask me, you know, uh, can you teach a class on this? Can you do this and that? Um, I carried a, a few regular students. Uh, but then when uh, Al Tracy's son, Mark, came home from his mission for the Mormon church. Uh, he was uh, working as uh, a ballet at the San Jose Athletic Club where I used to work out. And I came out one day and, and they had a, a, a very, very nice restaurant there. And he was parking cars and I came out and he says, are you, are you Ted Sumner? I said, yes. He says, well, I'm Mark Tracy. I said, oh, nice to meet you. He says, well, my father says you're my new instructor. Um, oh, really now? Yeah. Well, that's how it was with Al. You know, Al would call me and he'd say, I'm, I'm doing a super camp in Chicago. Uh, you know, so book your flight and uh, you'll probably need to rent a car. And uh, this is a hotel that's right nearby. Uh, and be there by the 15th. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, you know, <laughs> no. No uh, mention of compensation or, you know, can you get the time off? Uh, but uh, when I opened my own school, uh, uh, that was in uh, 1988, uh, and that was that was the one of the one of the biggest schools there at the time, teaching predominantly adults. Now the old San Jose school that was on San Carlos Street, we had 600 students at one time. Uh, Holy cow! Now that was that was the biggest single art school probably in the world. The, the Kodokan in Japan uh, is, is multiple arts uh, in addition to judo. 
so we were we were one of the biggest schools. And when Tack Kubota, um, when he held the uh, world championships in San Jose, he asked if he could train uh, at our school in the evening. And he came in, and, and I mean, every spot on the mat was taken. There were, you know, guys teaching in the hallways. And he said, this isn't a dojo. It's a factory. Um, but uh, with, with, with my own school, then I, I, I did take on students um, with, uh, oh, they call it special needs now, learning disabilities. And then uh, my son, who is, he was 15 years as a San Jose police officer. He's now uh, working for Austin PD. Um, he, uh, uh, somebody missed a fall uh, and uh, was, hurt their back. And, and I went through, okay, you know, you got to be here on Saturdays for the falling and the rolling, and you got to learn that stuff. And uh, he mentioned that um, he was uh, assigned to the, uh, what was the unit called? Uh, it's basically they, the police call these guys when they're in trouble. Uh, they didn't really care about us when, when I was there. It was a crisis management unit. And uh, mm. it's who the police go to when they're in trouble. And he said that uh, they were having a lot of uh, uh, things with the uh, the guys coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and they were finding that they had mild to severe traumatic brain injury. And so they were running into problems and, you know, some of them overdrawing their bank accounts, uh, some of them fits of anger. You, you just didn't know. And he was working with a group that uh, did the therapy for the VA called uh, uh, Institute for Brain Services, Services for Brain Injury. Um, and he said, you know, maybe you come down and just teach a falling class. Well, uh, you don't just do anything that easy with the VA. When we presented that, they <laughs> a full uh, proposal as to what we were going to teach, this, that, the other thing. Uh, and they said, well, you know, uh, why do we need you? We've got Tai Chi. And I said, you got a totally different uh, Tai Chi is nothing like Kempo. I said, you know, we, we train the body, the mind, the spirit. Oh, God, you should have seen their eyes roll. The spirit. Oh, God, here he's going to go on some religious thing. You know, Ed Parker was religious. Now they're going to do this stuff. And I said, no, no, when we talk about spirit, we're talking about that warrior spirit. And I got their attention with that. And, I, again, I'm addressing uh, uh, top people in the VA, the people from the Brain Institute, plus certain physicians that were, you know, on staff and advisors and that kind of thing. And I said, when we're, when we're dealing with the, uh, with the spirit, we're talking about the warrior spirit. Well, what's that? Well, I explained to them, it's that thing inside you that when things are tough, when you think you can't do any more, it's that part of you that says, it keeps you going when your mind says, I can't, and your body says, I won't. And we teach people how to stoke it up uh, if you, and then how to control it. If you don't control it, it's just blind rage. Well, blind rage, you'll eat up that, that uh, adrenaline really fast, and you'll just be exhausted and pissed off. But if you know how to control mm -hmm. that, 
you can uh, become a devastating, devastating uh, martial artist. And boy, that intrigued them. So they, they uh, authorized a 12-week study. And they did all the measurements on these guys. They, they tested their strength, their peripheral vision, their reflex time, their range of motion, and all that. After 12 weeks, it was embarrassing how they had progressed. They said, we can't even measure some of it. But the thing that was the most telling, because remember, these guys were veterans. These were young men who had been injured. And I'll get back to it. But anyway, they they responded to the training because that was what they wanted. They didn't want to throw a beach ball back and forth to some, some gal who had studied uh, uh, physical therapy at Fresno state. They wanted to learn martial arts. They wanted hands-on stuff. They're all in wheelchairs, but they're, 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 this is what they wanted. And the, the thing that was the most telling was self-esteem and self-confidence. They couldn't measure it. They couldn't measure it. These guys, these guys had had they had gone from being poor me. I'm stuck in a wheelchair the rest of my life as a young man. To you know what? I can do this. I can I can function in in this uh, this world. You know. So uh, Ooh, it gave me goosebumps. And I told them. I told them. I said, look, I'll do the 12 weeks. But I've been teaching martial arts since I was 17 years old, and I am not going to abandon these guys. And I'll, I'll do it if I have to do it on my own. Um, so they, uh, they authorized it, and I began as a regular, a regular program. Uh, and then one day I came in, and there was this lady, you know, and she said, can I watch your class? I said, sure. You know, I got nothing to hide. You know. But at the end of the class, she said, well, why aren't there any women in the class? I, I don't know. You know, these are the people that they gave me. And, you know, then it just kind of grew from there. You know, and I'm, I'm not a misogynist or anything. You know, I, I, I agree. Why aren't there any women here? And next week I came back. There were 12 women. So I taught, started teaching a separate women's class. And then some of the guys started coming late. And they say, well, would it be okay if I just through the women's class. Oh my God. These guys want to be around the girls. Thought they could show off. So I just finally put the two classes together, let them train together. But that lady, that lady was from Cisco Systems and they were looking to provide a grant. Uh, And ultimately they gave the institute $4 million. So, uh, and I think based on the strength of the rehabilitation through Kimpo program that, that we had started there. When I moved to Texas, then uh, they had, uh, I had to stop it because I, I, there was nobody I could turn it over to except my, my top student, Vance Marikami. Uh, he was the only one I could trust with that. Uh, you, you had to be careful with these people that had any head injuries. Almost everybody had a tracheotomy scar. I mean, if you're, you're doing technique, you put your hands on them, you could, you could hurt them. Or if you hit them, you could hurt them. Um, they had to be really, really closely controlled. And he was the only one I could trust. He was working for Hewlett Packard and they said, no, you're an engineer. You belong here. We're busy. He's working 60 hours a week anyway. So then they have a shake up. He gets a new boss. And, uh, he asked the boss again and he said, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that you should be doing. 
HP has a program called HP Gives Back, and this is precisely what we should be doing. They authorized him to take all the time he needed on Thursday to teach the class. And so it's it's still going on because, uh, uh, like I said, I studied distance learning. So the, the, the Tracy people who came to me and wanted to know what do we do during this time, I gave them everything they needed to know about distance learning and how to conduct their classes in a distance format. Those who did it are still going okay. Those who didn't, their schools are closing. And I, I can't force them to do it. All I can do is show the way. Vance is doing very well with the same thing, just being a teacher. Yeah. The rehabilitation through uh, Kempo program is still going strong. Doug Schwinn came and saw it, and he started the same thing uh, where he is in. Uh, it's in Colorado. I'm trying to think of the town. Anyway, uh, and he's with the VA there and doing real well. So, and then there's two other programs in the United States. So uh, that worked out very well. And that's, that's one of the things that I'm probably most proud of that, that we've accomplished with, with our, uh, with our Kempo instruction of uh, special needs people. Is that uh, Grand Junction? Grand Junction. Yes. I'm sorry. I, I keep having those senior moments. I don't know what it is. Uh, luckily my Google foo seems strong today. So <laughs> Uh, speaking of here, just it's kind of in the same vein and kind of takes us into that uh, kind of wrapping towards the the martial arts piece here. There is an article I've seen in a couple of other places. I just found it again on Pat Monk's website, and it's where you're discussing that there's certain elements that are have to be present to constitute a technique. Yeah. You've got to neutralize the attack, position for advantage, administer a solution, and, and you have to escape. Do you feel that that has applied across all of the martial arts you have been a part of, or do you think that's really just unique to Kempo? Oh, no, I think it's very unique to Kempo. Um, uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, in jiu-jitsu, oftentimes they went to a pain compliance. That's not the way to end a conflict, because I can tell you from personal experience, um, there are going to be multiple opponents, assholes, have friends and they will show up at some point um, a friend of mine uh, he retired from law enforcement uh, he was one of Steve LeBounty's students as a matter of fact individual was working as a bouncer in a bar he had a, a patron who was acting up he uh, tried to restrain him tried to calm him down he wouldn't calm down tried to restrain him wound up going into a rear naked choke uh, and went to the ground with him and uh if, if people aren't familiar with that, you're on the ground on your back. Uh, he's on his back on top of you. You got him in the chokehold, and then you're using your legs to keep his legs apart so he can't get any leverage. And uh, everybody applauded. And he thought, well, you know, he couldn't, couldn't resist playing to the crowd, right? So he lets the guy come to a little bit, and then he chokes him out again. Everybody applauds again. And uh, he was going for a third time, and the guy's buddy walked up and stuck a knife under his arm it went between his ribs and punctured his heart oh and he, he bled to death before the ambulance could get there um you don't i tell my students when you're done don't admire your handiwork get the hell out of there these guys have friends and they will be along uh, you're lucky if you don't have to fight more than one guy anyway but if and uh, this this uh individual was working as a bouncer in a bar he had a, a patron who was acting up. 
He uh, tried to restrain him, tried to calm him down. He wouldn't calm down, tried to restrain him. Wound up going into a rear naked choke uh, and went to the ground with him. And uh, if, if people aren't familiar with that, you're on the ground on your back. Uh, he's on his back on top of you. You got him in the chokehold, and then you're using your legs to keep his legs apart so he can't get any leverage. And uh, everybody applauded. And he thought, well, you know, he couldn't, couldn't resist playing to the crowd, right? So he lets the guy come to a little bit, and then he chokes him out again. Everybody applauds again. And uh, he was going for a third time, and the guy's buddy walked up and stuck a knife under his arm. It went between his ribs and punctured his heart. Oh. And he, he bled to death before the ambulance could get there. Um, you don't, I tell my students, when you're done, don't admire your handiwork. Get the hell out of there. These guys have friends, and they will be along. Uh, you're lucky if you don't have to fight more than one guy anyway. But if you do, you get a satisfactory solution, get out of there. And don't wait around to tell the police that you're a martial artist. They're not, they're not looking to, to help you out. Just get out of there. Uh, so escaping is a very important part of it. Uh, again, when conflicts like that happen, you'll, you'll, you'll be surprised. They attract crowds. And oftentimes there are people who are friends of the, the guy you're in the conflict with. Sometimes they're just people who just don't like your look, so they're going to help out the other guy. One way or another, finish, the, finish it and get out of there. So neutralizing the attack, I mean, that, that takes many forms. Uh, real simple. I mean, without that, it, you, you can't do anything. You're going you're gonna to absorb the attack, and it could be, could be uh, very damaging to you. Uh, once you have, have neutralized that attack, you've got a position for advantage. You, you, you cannot be in a position where you're going to both throw a punch and you're both going to take, uh, take what the other guy can give. You, you, you don't trade one. You don't take one to give one. You want to be in a position of advantage where you can administer a solution, and that can be in a number of forms. Now, if you've got a pain compliance hold, break it and get out of there. Break the guy's arm. Break his wrist. Break whatever you have to and get out of there. But don't hold it in a pain compliance hold and wait for the police. One, they may not show up. Two, somebody else may show up and finish you off. And three, that's not your business. Finish them off and get out of there. Uh, I don't know any other art that teaches all those components. Um, only Kempo. And I've boxed. I've wrestled. I've, I've played judo. It, it, Kempo is... Uh, unique in the martial arts world in being uh, one, a complete art and two, uh, one that has a philosophy that is very powerful and very sound. So um, yes, it is unique to Kempo. Right on. I had to ask cause I've, I've never seen it broken down just specifically in that way before. So that's an excellent uh, breakdown there. Thank you. Okay, so been in multiple different arts, broke down that fantastic formula there, what differentiates and really distinguishes Kempo movement. So speaking of movement, you know, a while back, uh, I know you had sold your, your San Jose school to Vance and then moved out to Texas. So what's been going on for you since you moved out to Texas? Well, in all fairness, I gave the school to her. Uh, I stand corrected. And I did, I did that um, for a couple of reasons. 
um, one, I wanted the school to go on and I didn't, I didn't need any monetary remuneration for that. Two, I wanted it to go to Vance because he was the most qualified. Um, and three, I mean, I was asking him to take on all the students and, you know, some of them were maybe not people he particularly wanted to teach. Um, but if I gave him the school, he was pretty much obligated. Um, when we moved to Texas, I thought, well, you know, leaving California, uh, I'll pretty much be out of it, right? Uh, no. Everybody figured, oh, well, wait a minute. He's in Texas. That's much more centrally located. Come to our event here and our event there. And and so I found, you know, instead of going to uh, Al Tracy's event, and I usually went to Jeff Speakman's and, and Bob White's, I was going to events almost every other weekend from April through September. Um, so I've, I've stayed busy since I got here. Uh, now, as far as teaching here, uh, a neighbor is a, a local police officer, and I uh, have been asked to teach a number of uh, uh, different classes for the, the department there. But they had me come in and uh, work with uh, these people at this uh, rest home. And older people are preyed on a lot. Uh, one of the things that I didn't bring up uh, during the uh, uh, time we were talking about the real baptism through Kempo was that uh, uh, assaults on people in wheelchairs has been going up every year. FBI statistics show that it's rising rapidly. A lot has to do with these very fancy, expensive wheelchairs that people have now. Some of them cost up to $50,000. And these people are being assaulted and their chairs are being stolen. Uh, so the, the department asked me to, to give a class for this, uh, uh, I, what do you call it, rest home? Or, uh, mm -hmm. uh, elderly, elderly facility. And the techniques are essentially the same as what we were teaching the, uh, the people, uh, the veterans uh, in the wheelchairs. It's it's a, a pretty simple formula. It's 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 how you root your body to get uh, uh, power to be able to to drive with your strike, your block, or um, if they can kick with their kick. So uh, I did one uh, uh, elderly facility, and then uh, others heard about it, and you know, so I I did a number of them. Uh, Nice people, and they bought my book. Everybody wanted to buy my book, so <laughs> it turned. Yeah, we're going to talk about that here at the end. Here, I definitely want to hear more about it, but let's keep going where we're at at the moment. Um, so beyond that, uh, like I say, uh, I had, uh, uh, you know, was always uh, involved with with Al Tracy and. Uh, he had his super camp every year, and then his what he called his Hall of Fame gathering of eagles on the off years. Then when he passed, uh, he left a uh, senior advisory board, uh, and so uh, naturally we had the normal um, jockeying for position, uh, power, influence, all that, and uh, it got shaved down to where it's four people now rather than ten but we are much more efficient. Uh, and so I, I, I handle that. I have always uh, uh, helped Jeff Speakman at his, uh, his event each year. And uh, then uh, 
uh, Dick Willett in San Diego. Uh, I'm on his uh, senior advisory council. Um, and uh, when Roger Green uh, in Tulsa, he had his lawyer weekend every year. Uh, when he passed, I uh, go up there and I teach his students. Uh, his wife kept his uh, school going. That's beautiful. So I've stayed stayed busy, stayed busy, and I'm uh, like I say, I'm on uh, uh, four uh, senior advisory councils, and uh, the only one where I get any any contempt or anger is is my own organization, Tracy's. Uh, people accuse me of trying to steal the system from Pat Tracy and that kind of thing, but uh, you know, I'm just doing the best I can, you know with uh you know with what we have so uh and staying busy with it staying busy seems to be the operative term i'm just doing a little bit of research for this show and it was just like holy crap he's been at this seminar this seminar this seminar this seminar wow just all over the place yeah it uh like i say since i'm in texas now uh you know they, they want me in dallas one weekend and tulsa the next weekend st louis after that kansas city chicago and uh yeah <laughs> salt lake city that's uh, sam ellis has the uh uh unified grandmasters uh organization and he uh uh puts on a good one there so there's there's always something going on and it's too far away uh, it's no excuse anymore Anybody who says, well, I can't attend any seminars and I can't meet any of these, uh, these grandmasters, it's just not, it's a lame excuse. There's something going on almost every weekend throughout the summer. At least there was until this COVID thing. Yeah, I can't wait till that, that's all gone. Uh, that a student could drive to. And, you know, well, you know, you hear these excuses. Well, you know what? All we can do is put it on, you know. It's there for you if you, if you, don't make it you don't make it that's now uh uh, nick chamberlain uh did a uh a seminar a few months back uh and it was a zoom thing i i taught one of the classes but it began in uh scotland then to england then to portugal then to new york dallas austin albuquerque uh to uh, phoenix and then to la Wow. And that's all one day. Uh, You're spanning what? What is that? Was, 10 different time zones, I think? Yeah, I think Jeez. so. I think so. And uh, now, uh, since I moved here, uh, I met uh, uh, a gentleman who's become a good friend who uh, he was a Hollywood sound engineer. He did my audio book for me. And uh, he has a green room at his studio. So when I taught the seminar, I didn't just use the zoom stuff. Uh, he was able to put a background so that uh, when I was explaining, um, power and focus, you know, he had a shot of Albert Einstein of the blackboard. Oh, you got the professional studio going on. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was a lot of fun. And you can still, you can go to, to Chamberlain's website and, uh, you can pull that up and look at it. So staying busy is, is the name of the game there. So uh, let's see. My, uh, Go ahead. My, my, my audio friend, though, he does uh, not only that, he does uh, 
uh, drone work, uh, sound work. He does everything. James Toledo. Um, and you can Google him if you need any of that stuff done, but he's the best there is. There we have it. We had an endorsement out there. How about that? So you've been in and around the arts. Let's see. So uh, November 1963 is when you started with the Tracys. Is that when you consider your official start into martial arts, or was there when you then prior to that you consider the start point? Yeah, I don't. I don't pad my resume. You know, with well, I boxed. I started boxing when I was eight years old. No, I don't pad my resume. Martial arts, specifically Kempo, 1963. That's when I started. I had been doing that nonstop uh, since '63. So we just passed uh, counting 2020. That's if my math is right. That's uh, 57 years as of November of 2020. Yeah, about right. So I'm, I just passed 22 myself and I look at, you know, my seniors in the arts and I, I'm, I'm part of this weird generation that I don't care what art you're in. If you've been around it that long, I'm calling you one of my seniors. You know, we may, you know, our lineage diverges further back than that, but you know, I absolutely love getting the opportunity to talk to people like you and who have been around, you've gotten a chance to use your skills and practical applications of it. And you've been spending the majority of that time period giving back to others. I mean, you went through that entire process of helping out our veterans, which that gave me goosebumps just listening to the story. Absolutely love hearing stuff like that. So it brings me to a question that I like to ask everybody in a little bit of a different way. And this one I'm just going to go direct with. What do you feel has been the biggest thing that you've gotten out of all of your experience in martial arts on a personal level? Well, in addition to still being alive, uh, having been able to protect myself in some, some harrowing situations. Um, the, 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 the thing that is the most gratifying, um, is I've worked in other fields. Nobody has ever called me and told me, Ted, thanks for selling us that software and that equipment. It changed our lives, you know, made it better. Uh, nobody's ever called me who said, Ted, thanks for, for sending me to prison for, for 25 years for bank robbery. Um, that, that really changed my life and it made, made me a better person. However, now with, uh, the internet and, and communication the way it is, a month doesn't go by that I don't hear from somebody that I taught at one time or another, uh, filling me in on what they've done in life, uh, and the challenges they've faced and telling me, you know, I, I couldn't have done it without the skills and the discipline I learned from you in the martial arts. Um, it, uh, that, that's the most gratifying thing there is. When, when I went back to California and I, I went to the class and Vance was teaching it with the veterans and these guys started hugging me. I mean, they rolled their wheelchairs up and started hugging me uh. and grabbing at me. Um, you know, and thanking me. I mean, uh, there, there isn't anything else that, that is like that. You know, you know, a close, a close seconds real estate. When people get home, they love it's. You know, thank you. We, we we love it. It's it's great. That would be the only thing that would even come close. But martial arts, uh, you'll never, you'll never be able to place uh, a quantitative value on what you get out of it. 
what you get out of all the, the time you spend teaching. Some of the frustrations and certainly the injuries. You get injured in the martial arts. It's, it's you know, it's martial arts. It's not ballet. And it's not ballet. And I, I, I can't I, – it's so gratifying and uh, so rewarding. So – I love hearing stories like that. That's that's the kind of things that keep me motivated and help me try to make sure I'm on the right path as well. I, I'm so Absolutely. grateful to share this interview with you. I really am. Well, I said I had to take a moment there. That, that was just one of those like you know, okay, got, got to give me a moment here on this one. That was good. Uh, what what would you say to somebody who is maybe never been had that calling to martial arts because they've just never been exposed to it? So this part, let me back up a second. This podcast is currently, uh, when I checked the stats this morning, it was now saying 31 countries worldwide, which I haven't recorded an episode wow. in three years. So that tells me that these episodes are still getting shared around. They're still moving forward. And I'm really excited for the season two here. So uh, where I'm going, let me circle back again on that is, how would you describe the benefits to somebody who was not maybe physically inclined or had never been called to that martial arts as like, this is a path of study that could really benefit me. How would you position it for those people or someone in that category? The, uh, the thing about the martial arts is, and, and, and what I presented to the VA was we train body, mind, and spirit. Um, the, the body, it speaks for itself. I mean, the mind, uh, the discipline that I had learned. Uh, remember, I was just starting high school when I, when I got into this, through college and then through the military. As a, you know, uh, they, they call a 19-year-old now a youth. I was considered a young man, you know, and I was expected to, to conduct myself like a soldier. Uh, those things, that, that discipline, that ability to to um, to uh, uh, how would I put it here? Um, the ability to keep the mind in the moment, uh, because you got to be in the moment when you're fighting. Boy, you you get distracted even for a second, you could be dead. Um, and then the spirit. Now, a lot of people get angry. But if you learn how to, how to, one, stoke it when you need it, bring it up, control it, direct it, and then, then you got to be able to turn it off. And I found in law enforcement, I'm one second, I'm, I'm in a life and death struggle with a guy who wants to kill me. The next second, he's my prisoner. I've got to protect him. He's my responsibility. i got to shut it off. And that was that that requires training that those qualities in a person will serve you no matter what you decide to do. Um, now, you can't train in one and not the other. It's a package. You've got to you got to train the whole package, the body, the mind and the spirit. It all goes together. You can't cherry pick it. Don't come to my school watch one kata that we're doing and say, oh, I want to learn that kata. Because you're going to start at the beginning. It's the same thing with this. Well, where did you learn that kind of mental discipline? It, it goes with the whole, the whole package. It's, it's, it's all one, one component. You cannot disassemble it. 
uh, and anybody who who has the opportunity and then says, well, I, I don't I don't have the time. What I'm, I'm saying, and I will say this unequivocally to anybody, your time, I don't care what you're doing, cannot be better spent. It doesn't take that much time. Now, for me, I gave up everything, but that was just, I went whole hog into it. I gave up sports. I gave up everything to, to do martial arts. But, but you don't have to to get all these benefits. So, well, I want to spend more time with my kids. You know what? You give yourself an hour a night to train in the martial arts, and you'll be a better father. I completely agree with that. So, I mean, that's that. That's where it, it, it's for everybody. Anybody who says, you know, no, that's not for me, they're only kidding themselves. I look at that usually more of you know, ignorance is not a negative term. It's it's all all ignorance is is just lack of knowledge on a given subject. But it gets thrown around that way right. in a negative connotation, and it, it shouldn't be. You know, being ignorant of something should literally motivate you just to be able to get enough, at least enough information to be able to understand it. You know, that doesn't mean you have to go, well, you know, full force into it and do it for the entire life, no matter what that given piece is. But if you're going to have a conversation with anybody and decide, especially if that's a path for you, you might want to have at least some information about it. You know, what would benefits would it give you? What would you have to put into it? And as you said, an hour a night will make you better all the way around for your entire life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and like you say, the difference between ignorance and stupidity is ignorance is just not knowing. Stupidity, well, if you're so stupid that you think martial arts can't help you, well, maybe we can't help you. you know? <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I, like I say, I, I hear from people all the time. Uh, I ran into uh, uh, one gentleman and I said, uh, I taught his son. I said, how's he doing? Oh, he's a Rhodes Scholar. He's studying at Oxford. Wow. What? And another kid I ran into, he was a troubled kid. I started teaching him and and I used to tell him, I said, you know, why why are you getting bad grades in school? Your parents are going to take you out of Kempo if you don't get better grades. You know, I don't like school. I said, well, you know what? Sometimes I don't like what I'm doing, but it's my job. And your job right now is to get good grades in school. And then he just disappeared. And two years later, he walks into my school. He's a United States Marine in full dress uniform. And he told me, he said, I'd never have gotten through it if it hadn't been for what I learned from you. Ooh, goosebumps again. This is honestly my favorite part of doing this show is getting to hear these stories from you know people like yourself where these are the things that people have come back and told you, and these are the things that you've been able to help people with. That's really, to me, what the martial arts is about in today's modern world, is, is helping people accomplish things that they normally wouldn't be able to accomplish. I mean, yes, we go through self-defense. Yes, we go through bumps and bruises. Yes, we go through all the physical pieces of it, but it's so empowering when you can spend some time and learn things about yourself through the process. A lot of people tell me that the reason that they've been successful is they were afraid until they started studying the art and they realized and learned they didn't have to be afraid of anybody. You know, you may not, you may not win every time, but you put out the good fight. You give it the best fight. There was, I, I was, shoot, I was only about 17, I think, and I was fighting in a, a competition and we came down to the final. 
and the guy the guy was about oh, close to 30 and he was a tough tough guy and al tracy asked me he says what's the matter you afraid of him and i was kind of like well yeah but i didn't want to say it and he says you just give it your best you know don't don't worry about winning or losing you go in there and you, you tear them up and i lost the match but as i was walking off out of the ring al tracy had a big smile on his face and I said, what? I lost. He says, yeah, but you cut his heart out. That guy doesn't fight anybody anymore. You, you, you took it away from him. So you don't always, you know, you may not win every time, but you know what? If you give it a good fight, you don't lose either. So these are things you learn in the art. I love it. And, and to my understanding, nowhere else in life, at least in my experience. When, when we, when, we got here, we, we saw the beauty of the state, and, and there's a lot of things. People from California think that it's so unique. Texas has its own unique beauty, and, and it does appeal to Californians. My wife and I started our business, uh, the Sumner Team ATX. Our website is thesumnerteam.com. We, uh, we've been working with a lot of veterans. Uh, Fort Hood is not far from here. Uh, we specialize in, in obtaining VA loans. Um, we specialize in relocations, uh, from anywhere. We just play some people, law enforcement officer from uh, Indiana moving down here, uh, law enforcement people, uh, usually on pensions and they're looking for uh, good value and, uh, in a home and, uh, reasonable prices. And, uh, we, uh, we also, uh, and, and the most gratifying thing is we work with a lot of first-time buyers. Uh, there's nothing like handing the keys over to a person who's just bought their first home. Uh, I still do seminars. Um, uh, when, when this COVID thing lifts and we start doing them again, and, and mm-hmm. uh, I yeah, will be all over the country. Uh, just watch, watch the internet. Uh, then uh, my book is available. Uh, either on Amazon or if you want a personalized, uh, personally inscribed uh, copy, I'll be happy to inscribe it and sign it for you. Um, I'll write pretty much anything you want, unless it's obscene or profane. Um, I still, uh, I developed, uh, when I was studying under uh, Professor Kufroff, he showed me what he called his scroll, and that was uh, in Okazaki's system, when you receive your second degree black belt, you get an instructor's scroll, which they call a Moku Roku, which is the history of the system. Uh, and so I created that for the Tracy system. Um, I have those available too, if people want to buy them as well as the family tree, which is not complete, but you know, it's uh, the best I could do at the time. Uh, now, if somebody wanted to get a hold of either the, I know your book is at deepcovercop.us. Where do you have your uh, centralized pieces for anything related to the Tracy stuff? The Tracy stuff, you can go to uh, the website Tracy, no S, Tracy Karate, one word, dot com. Uh, that keeps pretty up to date. Um, as far as. Um, Anything else? I, I mean, I have my Facebook page, San Jose Kempo, and then I, you know, my personal uh, page. Then we have 
the Sumner team, ATX. Uh, you see a lot, a lot of what's going on there. Um, you know, you can reach me, of course, on Instagram. Uh, uh, you can Twitter. Uh, you can email me. Uh, or you can call me. You know, I actually answer my phone. Uh, a lot of people don't, but if you call me, uh, my my email is either deepcovercop at gmail.com or tls1580 at yahoo.com. Uh, my phone number is 408-645-4675, and I do answer my phone, uh, unless you've, you've called right in the middle of the cocktail hour, in which case I am decompressing, and I will call you back if you leave a message. Well, there you go. we got a ton of ways to get a hold of Mr. Sumner, so easy, easy. <laughs> so I want to say uh, thank you very much for your service, both in military and in law enforcement. And thank you very much for giving back to the world for so much of your life, which is everything you've accomplished through martial arts, everything you accomplished through teaching people in the martial arts. It's just a fantastic story. My last piece I wanted to try to pick your brain on is what I call the uh, message to the world moment, which is, you know, this podcast is now up to 31 countries, which is just mind blowing to me because this is just a labor of love that I just try to help, you know, help share more positivity to the world with and get these stories out there that maybe some people haven't heard before. So knowing that it's going around the world as it is now, and because it's already on the internet, it means it's going to be there forever, unless the internet goes down for some reason. Um, what message would you like to leave that anybody who hears this can take as a positive thing towards their own life or something that's benefited you and you just want to share? Boy, that's a, that, that one could go a lot of directions. You can go as many directions uh, with it as you like. Well, I'll, I'll say this. Um, if you decide to enter into the martial arts, uh, they say there's six degrees of separation in the martial arts. It's two. Um, we recently uh, had a client who was relocating. They, uh, their agent, where they live, where they came from, found us and hooked us up with him because he was a martial artist. And turns out he, his instructor was a student of one of my students. Um, there's just too many coincidences. Uh, the 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 world is network. So uh, I, I would say this, you know, if you're going to go on things like Facebook, uh, or you're going to uh, be uh, uh, anywhere out there in, in, in uh, the internet and you're talking to people in the martial arts, be polite because you're going to find we're probably probably connected to them in some way or the other. Um, it's always a little embarrassing when you get uh, mouthy with somebody, you get that keyboard uh, braveness uh, and then you find out, you know, that person is uh, connected to you more closely than you thought. Um, thank God for everything you have and the blessings that come upon you and be able to uh, understand that when adversity comes your way, uh, you should be happy about it because all it's doing is making you tougher and getting you ready for, for uh, what you need uh, to get through this. So right on, uh, that's not the best way I can answer that. I, I, yeah, that one always catches everybody a little out of the loop there. So, 
Uh, I'll, I'm going to tie that one back one more time to uh, you had posted up a quote earlier from Pericles, and I'm going to let you reiterate what that quote was and why it was important, and you posted it that way. Well, Pericles was the he was an elected general um, in the the ancient Greek city state of Athens uh, during what would, would be called the Golden Age of Greece, um, and he. Uh, he became uh, what what would be called a tyrant uh, uh, that that has very very negative connotations nowadays. But then it was just uh, more or less a, a more gifted leader who rose to the top and uh, and uh, ran things. And he he was more or less the leader of Athens uh, from his position as an elected general. They elected ten of their top people as generals. And he led them through the Peloponnesian War. Uh, on the first dead of the Peloponnesian War, he delivered a eulogy in which he said, what, you'll be, what you leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of others. Um, I was asked uh, one time how I want to be remembered. Uh, and my answer was, I don't. Don't worry about me. Don't think about me because uh, you should be thinking about what I taught. You know, warm, uh, fuzzy thoughts about me when you're in trouble aren't going to get you through it. But if you remember what I taught, you may live to see the next day. And when things get tough and you think you can't go on, you, you reach in and, and pull from those lessons. And you'll find that, you know, you got a lot more strength than you thought you did. And you're a lot tougher than you think you are. Um, a lot of people found that uh, in study of the martial arts. They didn't think they were all that tough, and then they find out they were. Um, I, I had a, a, a gentleman come up to me at the Hall of Fame, uh, wanted to buy me a drink. And I, I, he, he just kept, he, he just wouldn't leave it alone. So I said, all right, I'll have a drink with you. And he said he was a student of, of Tom Connors, who had been a part of the Tracy organization. And he said, he, he said, Tom Connors always talked about this curly-headed young kid. And he said, they always underestimated him. He said he was, he was uh, you know, not a tough-looking guy. He just very young-looking, but they underestimated him. And he always made him pay. He said, that was you, wasn't it? And I said, well... I guess I'm the only guy that fits that description. You know? So um, you, you you find that strength, but you find it in what you did, what you did to get there. And it doesn't have to be a life and death situation. Everyday training. People will read my book and I say, well, that was easy for you. You were a black belt. No, it wasn't. I was one, maybe two training sessions from losing my life altogether. You gotta, you gotta have the discipline. You gotta, and you'll find that the strength is there if you'll just, just do the work. I, I, I can't say anything better than that. I'm gonna call out. We're gonna need to end on that note. <laughs> okay. That was brilliant. Um, yeah. It's been fun. I, I enjoyed talking with you. It was my honor, and, sir. Uh, 
like you said, you're, you know, it'll, this will all be here after you and I are long gone. I mean, I, every now and then I'm going through my stuff and I find a photograph. I found one of uh, Bruce Lee at the uh, 1967 state championships in California. And that was the first time he spoke to me and I'll never forget what he said. He said, shut up, kid. I'm talking. <laughs> uh, well, I kept asking him questions. I kept firing questions at him. I mean, you know, uh, but, um, uh, the uh, the 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 fact that this might be here beyond us is is very gratifying. Audience listeners, this has been a conversation with Grandmaster Ted Sumner. I had a blast. I hope you did too. A personal thank you to Grandmaster Ted Sumner for your service, both military and law enforcement. Thank you for giving back to the world for so much of your life. I had a great time talking with Mr. Sumner, and I'm looking forward to getting my hands on a copy of his book myself. Recapping what he's got available at present, his book is at deepcovercop.us. His real estate website is thesumnerteam.com. The Tracy Senior Advisory Board is at tracykarate.com. No S, Tracy Karate. He's not hard to find. Visit his websites and the Tracy's board site. He's on Facebook, and when COVID lips, he'll be returning to the seminar circuit. It's an absolute blast for me to be back recording these shows. I can't give away the details just yet, but watch our website and our Facebook pages for upcoming episode announcements. If you're still subscribed, we thank you for sticking around while we got things squared away for Season 2. If you haven't subscribed yet, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and pretty much wherever else you get your podcast on. Our website is artistofmotion.com. Yes, we are absolutely interested in hearing stories from martial artists of any style, lineage, system, etc. We're here to provide that positive place to tell your story. Drop us an email at pod at artistofmotion.com. Reach out on Facebook at AOM Podcast or Twitter at AOM Podcast. Catch you next time. I'm Steve Zalazowski with the Artist of Motion Podcast.